You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. And today is a special, somewhat different podcast. And I'm really excited because I um, was actually invited on to Dr. Lee Warren's podcast, call you Lee, and we had just an incredible conversation. Um, and Lee is a neurosurgeon and his experience sort of with the brain and with all things brain related was fascinating to me, especially with some of your actual experiences in, in different like specifics, which we won't get into yet, but I'd love to start with, um, yeah, well, first of all, just welcome. So glad that you're here. Thanks, Annie. It's really good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And, and you've written a bunch of books and you have a new one coming out soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hope is the first dose is my new book and it comes out July 25th. It's all about sort of a treatment plan for what you do when life knocks you out. So when you go through hard things, we lost a son uh, 10 years ago and it's sort of like the, the path back to how do you find hope and, and happiness again after these big things in life happen. So. Mm, yeah. And what a cool thing to be able to do it with your, your knowledge and understanding. And then the book of yours I have is, um, I've seen the end of you yeah. with, you know, Dr. Dr. Amen, who I really admire endorsed. And it's, it's just so incredible to look at the reality of like who we are through this neuroscience perspective. So let's get into it with, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell a little of, of your backstory and how you got into this important work? Well, sure. So I um, grew up in a small town in Oklahoma and uh, for some reason, had this desire to be a physician from the time I was born, really. I, my parents say I never talked about anything else and didn't have any medical people in my family, but I just felt it was a calling and grew up and went to med school. And um, I went to medical school on a scholarship from the Air Force. So when I got out of my residency training as a neurosurgeon, um, they sent me to Iraq. So I spent, I spent uh, half of 2005 in a combat tent hospital. And we got mortared every day and and that kind of formed me as a, I was this sort of prototype control freak neurosurgeon type person, you know? And so I went to Iraq and got caught outside in a mortar attack one day. And that was when really I figured out that you can't really control a lot of things that happen in your life. And like, is this bomb going to blow me up or not? You know? And so I, I came home, I think from the war, it's kind of a different person then I went to the war as obviously I had some post-traumatic stress and all that, but just in a, in a bigger sense, had a loss of this sense that I was able to, or should try to control everything in my own life. And so then after the war, I went through a divorce and went through a lot of post-traumatic stress stuff. And then I met Lisa and, and remarried and we blended our families and, and was in practice for years. And then um, we lost our son, Mitch in 2013 which is a, another real good reminder that you can't control a lot of stuff in your life. And, and we tried everything you can imagine to try to figure out how to live again after, you know, you lose a child and, and uh, figure out pretty fast that most of the things that we use to numb ourselves to pain and hardship don't really help. You know, you can't drink or shop or play or spend your way out of grief. You have to, you have to learn how to rebuild your brain, right? So so I think that's really the, if you want to say what's the story of who Lee Warren is now, it started with writing and podcasting and trying to help my own self and my family learn how to live again when the lights went out. And and so kind of rebuilding our faith and our family and our and our just ourselves and in, in the the new reality of what it's like to have a family that's missing somebody and so um that was a 10-year journey that led me to writing books and podcasting and all the things that I do now and along the way has been this dual reality of practicing neurosurgery and learning more and more and more about how the brain works and how it doesn't work and then living a life that keeps throwing hard things at me. And, and then at some point, I guess I realized that the path for me back to being a whole person was to really apply that neuroscience knowledge that I was teaching other people about to this idea that I now 
kind of jokingly started out as calling self brain surgery. Like you, you can learn how to put your own brain back together in a way that works. And you've done that too. I mean, you, your story is one of stop numbing yourself and start living again and, and experiencing all these hard things. And, and that's really, that, that, that's, that's the nutshell of my life is, is this uh, series of getting knocked down and figuring out if that I really believe what I thought I believed and was I really who I thought I was. And some of the things that I thought worked didn't turn out to work. And and now I kind of understand and try to teach other people what really does work. So. Oh, I love that idea of self, self brain surgery. What a cool, <laughs> a cool concept. And so what are, what are some of the things that you found that, that kind of do work when you think about putting your own brain back together, which is just a wild thing to think about? Well, the, first of all, up until about 2004, we were taught and I was taught and taught, said it to thousands of patients, you're born with the brain you're going to have. And all you can do after that is break it and you can't make new neurons. And, and if you mess your brain up, you're hosed. And, you know, now we know that's not true. You make new neurons every night and, and you wake up with a new brain every day. And what, what changes is you can learn how to make better synapses, right? These connections, trillions and hundreds of trillions of connections between the neurons in your brain that, that turn out to be the things that you repetitively do and think about. And you can change those. And so the, the basis of the idea of self-brain surgery really is learn how to think about your thinking, as Daniel Amen always says. Uh, and as I teach my folks, um, you have to, the first thing you convince yourself is the feelings aren't facts. You know, feelings are neurotransmitter events in your brain. And sometimes you feel something that it points to a truth. And sometimes you feel, in fact, about five times more often, you feel something that points to something that isn't true. And so I think that's one of the things about addiction is that that we feel things and when we make synapses that says, if I, if I do this, I'll feel better. And it turns out not to be true, but then we've built the synapse that creates a habit that, that puts us in a negative place. And we keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Right. So that's, uh, that's the definition of being nuts is we think it's going to change. We keep doing the same stuff. So I think that the first part of it is, is learn how to understand that your brain lies to you all the time. Your brain, your, most of the thoughts that you think aren't true. And most of the things that you feel are synaptic events based on past experiences that don't really turn out to be true. You just have to learn how to control them. And that's what neuroplasticity is is applied neuroplasticity is learning how to make better synapses so that your brain becomes an organ that helps you instead of hurts you over time. And you can do it and anybody can do it. You just have to learn how to think better thoughts. Right. Which is, is so much sometimes easier said than done, but that's right. So hopeful that, yeah. And I love the title of your next book, like hope is the first dose because it just really gets to the heart of like, in order to even consider, okay, maybe I do have some control here. Maybe I can learn how to think new thoughts. Maybe I can, you know, make some changes. You have to start with the possibility of, of maybe I can. That's and right. yeah. So often that's like, like we don't even, we don't even take the breath to, to start with that. And, and we're just like headlong into, into the solution mode without even believing that it's going to work. That's right. That's right. And I, you know, when I say hope is the first dose, it's because it's to say you can have the best, I can be the best surgeon in the world. Annie, let's say you have a, a back problem or a brain tumor or something you need my help with. I can be the best surgeon in the world, but if you don't get in the car and drive to the hospital and sign the consent form, I can't fix your problem. Right. So in order for you to have the the motivation to get in the car and drive to the hospital and let somebody else help you, you've got to hope that that process is going to work and you got to have enough juice in your heart to, to turn the key over and drive down there. And so there's, there's some, there's some give and take with, with, with hope. And that's that you've got to do something to find it and, and it's reliable and it'll help. I, the surgeon will take care of you, but you got to get there and and that takes hope. And so that's why I, I, I say hope's the first dose. It, no treatment plan will help you if you're not hopeful and and, and believe that, that, it, that you can be helped. That's why rehab programs don't work unless you believe that they're going to help you. Right. Right. Yeah. And especially when so often, you know, especially with some of the more traditional recovery things, people are forced there. It is, you know, you're, you're given a court order to go and then That's right. yeah, you're not even, you're not even there voluntarily. So like there's no volition in it. And 
you know, I, I would assume by default, very little hope, if any. It's it's fascinating what you're saying because I think I think the reason you had reached out to me so long ago when when we had talked the first time was because you sort of saw that, you know, that idea of okay, like let's work with how the brain works in terms of there's, you know, sort of these natural natural forces that are going to be active in your brain because our brains are, you know, more or less survival machines at their core. And yeah. and let's look to update our thinking. And then when we update our thinking, our, our feelings will change. And that's, that's really the core premise of this naked mind is like, if you, if you learn new things and you're going to feel new things. And, and I think that you're so accurate in saying that even the precursor to learning new things is the hope, because if you don't have the hope first, you're not even going to be open to the knowledge that could, that could change your life. That's right. And we talk about this idea that we call TMT is just the massive thing. Like, like everybody, you know, or will know has gone through something huge in their life. And if you haven't yet, you know, bad news, spoiler alert, like you're going to like, you, cause you don't know any 200 year old people. Right. So, I mean, all of us are going to have something in our life, a death, an unexpected diagnosis, a divorce, something we didn't want, something's going to happen. And so because of that reality that there's going to be a massive thing out there, it, it's smart to plan ahead and have a have a plan in place for what you're going to do when that massive thing occurs. And that's sort of this this underpinning of it. I, I think what you talked about with cognitive dissonance is that the first time I reached out to you was I was so impressed with what you wrote about. Like nothing changes in your life until you get rid of the the, the belief that the thing that you used to use to help you can still help you. Like once you, once you admit to yourself that that thing doesn't work, then you start looking for something else. And and I've just noticed over the years that the people who seem to be the most resilient and I wasn't one of them because I got wiped out when my son died. I mean, to be frankly, you know, frank with you, it, the people that seem to do the best are those people that have spent a little bit of time thinking about the reality that life's going to throw some stuff at me. And I need to decide, you know, what I believe and what I'm going to do. I just, I just talked to a woman earlier today whose husband, the, she was camping with her family and they had four little kids and her husband went out for a hike first thing in the morning, he fell off a cliff and died. Like, so she's, she's there having, you know, coffee with her kids and the park rangers come up and tell her that her husband's has died. And, and she said, she wrote a beautiful book about it, uh, Beyond the Darkness, Clarissa Mall is her name. But she said, that 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 event like it, she had spent some time before that happened thinking about what would i ever do if i lost my husband right she had a she had an idea in her mind it turned out to be not real super accurate of what she had to do when it actually happened and so for me i think it it would behoove all of us to spend a little bit of time thinking what happens the next time I encounter that stressor that used to make me drink or what happens the next time I encounter a, a big event that, that I used to respond to by doing this thing or, you know, and, and, and that's the idea of building a treatment plan will help you become more resilient. And so I saw that the people who seemed to be the most resilient were those who had, had acknowledged to themselves that life's going to be hard, but I want to be happy anyway. And I want to be healthy anyway so i want to be prepared for those hard things by not treating a bad feeling with a bad surgery and so that the part of the self brain surgery thing is like don't treat a bad feeling with a bad operation right no oh, yeah that's that's so i mean what a great thought to have it it literally has never occurred to me we spend so much time just trying to avoid the reality that death will happen that hardship yeah. will and that addiction will happen that it couldn't be me it's not going to be me we don't but what it what a fascinating it literally has just never occurred to me to think about making a plan because it will like feels yeah so logical well, and i had a patient uh i'm sorry go ahead just radical i mean I, I was really yeah just struck I had this guy in Wyoming, um, I call him Lucky Chuck in my new book because he, he got struck by lightning three times and survives. <laughs> he was lucky guy. But but he told me his his wife got diagnosed with breast cancer and they were at the doctor and then had the biopsy and they were waiting for the result of the biopsy to find out if it was cancer or not. And and she turned to him and said, 
Chuck, you need to make some decisions right now about what you believe. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about me? What do you believe about our family and the future and all these things? You need to make some decisions now because if this is really cancer and I get really sick and I die, like, like you're going to, I don't want you to spend time wrestling with what you believe. I want you to be able to hold on to those things that you believe. And I want you to be able to use them to help you navigate this hard thing that we're going to go through. And so make some decisions now and let's talk about and build this kind of, you know, resilience. And, and so I, I realized, and I said this to Clarissa earlier, like, we train people, Annie, for CPR. Like, what if you're in Walmart and somebody has a heart attack? We train them, like, do chest compressions, you know, and we train people to change tires on their car because we have flats sometimes when we don't expect them. But we never train people how to deal with massive, hard things that hit our brains and make us sad. Right? We don't talk about those things in advance. So we, we don't train them. And so people then self-medicate and they gamble and they, you know, get involved in stuff they ought not to be involved in that hurts them instead of being able to flex those muscles of things that they've rehearsed in their minds and prepared for. And so I, I think that's a big part of this human experience that we're on is, is preparing. Don't just learn CPR in first aid, like learn how some emotional tools that you can deploy or help other people deploy. And like, think about the EpiPen, right? Al people with severe allergies carry an EpiPen in their pocket because they might run into that bee sting. And then they can save their own life with it, right? They jam that thing in and give themselves the medicine that they need. But we also should be able to do that to other people, to help help other people, you know, deploy the EpiPen when they need it. Wow. It's, a, it's such a powerful concept. And it, it, me having interviewed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people about their their story through their relationship with alcohol, there is often, whether it's just innate from when they were born, because there was there was kind of trauma all throughout, and then their first yeah. drink feel normal really for the first time well hopeful for the first time or the other the other flip of that is that they're total social drinker not really a big deal not an issue until something happened and yeah. it's, it's almost always there was like for me it was my postpartum depression with my second son that just blindsided me right and I had been a heavy drinker don't get me wrong like I, I still was overusing alcohol but there was something in how I started to drink to self-medicate that pain that that just triggered behaviors that I never thought were going to be possible yeah. for me. I didn't think I was that kind of person, right? And and I've 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 spoken to people where you know death. One of one of our coaches, she also lost lost her son, and that was a huge triggering event for her. Or divorce uh, and those things. And so when we don't when we don't have a plan or think of it proactively, and especially it's just we just assume it's never, we have this just bias in our brain to say, it's just never going to happen to me, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So that's right. Really idea. I was in this naive place. You know, I, I, I have a profession where every month I'm in the ER telling some family that their kid, you know, hit his head on the skateboard, wasn't wearing a helmet and died. And, and my brother had a car accident and one of his sons died. And and, you know, I, I, I see all this stuff and still I had this idea that my kids were all going to be fine. Like, like nothing, nothing's ever going to happen to us. You know, we pay our taxes and we go to church and we do all the things we're supposed to do. And so we're going to be okay. Right. And then we're not, you know, the phone rings and, and your son is stabbed to death and you, you know, th things happen. And, and I guess that's the, that's the bottom line. Like every person is going to encounter something and it might be a series of many massive things for you. It may not, hopefully friend that whoever's listening, you won't have that big massive thing, but all of us have this, this sort of water torture, little drip of life. And for some of us, that's enough to set us off. Right. And, and we self-medicate or we gamble or we do something to numb ourselves to that. The problem with numbing though, as Brene Brown is so well said, is that you can't selectively numb part of your life. Like you, if you numb part of it, you numb all of it. And then you don't know how to experience or feel the good stuff anymore. And wow. So I don't know if it's, it's, it's too big of an idea to kind of unpack a little bit more for, for our purposes here. But if you were going to give some broad brush strokes about how somebody might, you know, create or start to think about how to create a plan for, for that moment or how to create, you know, CPR for, for that moment. 
Well, I just wrote a whole book about that. So you read the book. No. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> no, so so the the way I put it together, and you know, I mean, I'm a I'm a brain surgeon, so I, I it sounds a little cheesy, but it, I couch everything that I teach in metaphors related to surgical ideas, right? And but the reality is, we know from functional MRI, and we know from neuroplasticity, you actually are a brain surgeon. Like Annie Grace, you're a brain surgeon because every time you change how you think about something, you change the structure of your brain, and you change therefore not just the structure of your brain, but you change the neurotransmitter balances, which changes hormone balances, which changes cell surface protein receptors, changes the DNA inside your cells. And when those cells replicate, they're more like the ones that you turned them into before. So you're like rebuilding your whole body when you change the way you think about things. And this isn't wishful thinking. This is like legit neuroscience nowadays. We know that and here's a good example. You said it's a big subject to unpack. So I'll give you one. Um, there's these studies with mice. Uh, it was done in Japan, and they exposed these mice to the smell of cherry blossoms, which apparently is a big, powerful smell for mice. And every time the mice would react to smelling the cherry blossom, they would shock them on their skulls. So give them a painful stimulus in response to this cherry blossom smell. And what they figured out is the this they were male mice. They figured out that the sperm in these mice that had been shocked changed its dna and the offspring of these shocked mice were afraid of cherry blossom smells when they were born wow. that's epigenetics okay and that change carried out to three and four generations of the offspring downstream even when they weren't shocked they were already afraid they exhibited the physiological signs of stress and fear when they were exposed to this smell that their grandparents or great-grandparents had been pained by right they've shown it in humans and holocaust survivors that that cortisol resting cortisol levels and other markers of stress responses are shown down to three and four generations of holocaust survivors okay they've shown it in vietnam veterans with ptsd so the, the bottom line is i i teach all this self-brain surgery language but the the truth is what you experience and what you feel and what you think about changes the cells in your body and it changes the DNA in your body. And those changes in some ways are transmitted to your offspring. And, and so, so it's real, it's really true. So we're going to talk about building a treatment plan. The first thing you need to understand is it's not a joke. Like, like you really are a brain surgeon. You're, you have the power to change the way that your brain works and your brain is the most powerful influencer of the way that the rest of your body works. Right? So your brain's kind of in control of all your glands and all your hormones and all the things that you secrete and all the ways that your cells are formed. And what we know now is cells are really smart. So on the surface of all the cells in your body, there are these specialized proteins called receptors, right? That bind, you know, all about this, but if somebody listening doesn't like you have these, molecules that are designed to pick up hormonal signals from other um, from things that happen in your blood like you know the cells in your in your um, pancreas respond to sugar levels and make insulin and so those um, cells receptors in your body change when they're constantly surrounded by a higher or lower concentration of the thing that they receive and so what we learn is that the cells that you make tomorrow are more like what they needed to be yesterday based on what you exposed them to, which is really fascinating, right? So, so your body becomes specialized to respond to the environment that you routinely expose it to, which means if you respond to stress with a fear response and you run away all the time and you're constantly worked up and stressed out, then your cells in your body are going to become finely tuned to react to stresses and hormones related to fear and anxiety and stress and all those things. So you're teaching your body that life's probably going to really suck for you and you need to be ready for it by being more sensitive to those things that are terrible, right? <laughs> or you can teach your body that I'm going to put myself routinely, put myself in a more calm environment. And sometimes that means I need to do radical surgery on some relationships or some people that aren't good for me or some decisions that I've made that are harmful to me, or I can need to stop putting these chemicals in my body that make me feel bad the next day and then make me miss work and get fired and get divorced and all that, you know, you start teaching yourself that I can reshape my future by changing the way I think about my past and about what things that I've 
triggers that may set me off or things that decisions that I've made in the past, I can reshape all that and I can rebuild my brain and take control of that instead of being a victim of it. That's the basis of it. Gosh, it's, it's just, it, it's so powerful when science, like very specific science comes alongside some of the things that, you know, we've sort of known maybe like not even me. I don't, I don't know that they're mainstream ideas, but they're ancient ideas too. You yeah. know, and there's this confirmation of this, this ancient belief. I mean, even like back to like Stoics and of, you know, think a certain way and you can create a certain reality. And then, and then you're just yeah. sitting here telling us like, there's, there's literal proof of that. When, when you're doing that kind of work, self-brain surgery, how long does it take for you to start to see the changes in your life? Well, you can change it almost immediately. I mean, your 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 body is constantly turning itself over. Every cell in your body is new every 120 days or so, for the most part. So, so you can make radical changes in your life and your future. The hard part is breaking habits, right? So you can you can change the structural stuff almost immediately. Habits are harder because you have so many synapses wired into, you know, you don't even think about it. You reach in the fridge and grab the thing that you do to make yourself feel better. You don't have to think about it and you're half a, you know, half a glass of whatever into it before you realize it, right? Because it's a habit. So, so part of it is strategic. Like I'm going to build some systems in my life. There's an amazing book by a guy named Chris Voss um, called Never Split the Difference. You know the book? Yeah. Um, he was an FBI hostage negotiator. And there's a line in there that really, I stole it. I've used it a million times. I always credit him. But it's um, when the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your preparation. You, you, don't, you don't become some superhuman when you're tempted or stressed or you're, you know, feeling bad and you want to, you, you want to, you typically would go towards this particular behavior or thing. Instead, you don't become some super noble person who can gut it out and avoid all the trouble. You don't when the pressure's on. You fall back to your habit, back to your preparation. So knowing that, knowing that neuroscience wants to work on your behalf, if you'll let it, then build some systems. And the first one is get the stuff out of your house that you typically fall into, right? That the, there's an old comedian, Flip Wilson, that used to, he used to say, the devil made me do it. And, you know, he would, he would do something bad and he would say, the devil made me do it. And I always say, well, the devil might make you do certain things, but if you got Cheetos in your, in your pantry and you got beer in your refrigerator and you find yourself drinking them and eating them, the devil didn't make you do that. You just shouldn't have had them in your house, right? So, so build some systems, build some systems to help you be successful and make it harder. People are inertia machines. We, we, we tend to do the easy thing. So make it harder for yourself to fall back into those old patterns. Most of us aren't at the point where if we're tempted to have a glass of wine or tempted to, to do the thing, we're not going to probably get out of bed at 10 o'clock and get dressed and drive down to the liquor store and make that part. We're probably going to manage to not do that. But if it's in the refrigerator, it's a problem, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it's, it's just so like, it's just so simple, but it's just so true, right? When you have those um, you know, firing together, wiring together that habit and yep. it feels so hard to overcome, but it is in the moments, you know, and then, and then I think the thing that we do that really undermines us even more is that when we do make that mistake, we don't just simply say, oh, well, obviously I shouldn't have had it in the house. We create all of this meaning around, That's right. oh, I'm just a terrible person. I'm a failure. I can't believe I did that. I obviously am never going to be successful. This is just proof that right. it's not for me. It works for other people. That's exactly right. We we become our own worst enemies. And there's there's an oath that we take in medicine. So if I'm gonna, you know, anoint you as a self-brain surgeon, Annie, the first thing you have to do is when you finish med school, they make you take an oath. And the first part of the oath is First, no harm, like you primum non nocere. You don't do things that harm yourself. And so I have this, had this patient um, that had a spinal cord injury and he was fighting through the rehab and he almost gave up. And, and I, he came back to my office a few months later and he was walking again. And I said, what, what enabled you to walk again? And he said, I decided 
that I had to relentlessly refuse to participate in my own demise. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's the best line ever. Relentlessly refuse to participate in your own demise. First, no harm. Like, so, so it's harmful to beat yourself up with those lines that we say, those lies about ourselves that we can't change or we'll never be okay. That's harmful. So, cut that out like what you're doing when you use negative self-talk is you're building synapses that make it easier for you to believe those things about yourself the next time and the bad news is your brain is five times wired towards negativity more so than towards positivity so what that means is you touch a hot stove you only have to do it once before you make a synapse that tells you you're going to pull that hand back next time when you see something hot and that's protective so those negative impulses are protective we're so we're built in with them or created with them or however you would like to say it to protect ourselves from the harmful things in our environment but they work against us because neurotransmitters are amazing annie but they have narrow bandwidth and so in other words when neurotransmitters tell you that you should feel fear, for example, you don't know if it means that there's a bear in your house or that you're just worried that your husband might be unfaithful to you. It feels the same. F fear feels the same, whether it's a bullet flying at you and you're afraid of that, or you might have cancer someday and you can't stop worrying about that. The, the same neurotransmitters create that feeling, right? So in order to overcome that negative bias, we've got to positively put things in our heads and our hearts that are building better synapses ahead of time. That's part of that treatment plan idea that we talked about. And I call that prehab when I'm going to send you to, to have back surgery for several weeks before you have back surgery. I want you to go to the physical therapist and do some exercises and get your muscles stronger and learn some postural things and learn how not to injure yourself lifting and all those things. So we do this prehab and in the, the self brain surgery world, we talk about, putting good thoughts and good things that are true in your head to prepare you for how you're going to respond when those bad things happen. So, so put some stuff in your head. It can be like you said, smart things that other people have written stoic philosophers, scripture, whatever it might be, good books, put some stuff in your head and your heart that you know to be true that you can fall back on and then put some people in your world, this community idea, for hey if this thing happens to me i need you to be my wingman i need you to be willing to step up and call me out or help me grab me and pick me up and help me along and people will do that for you it's amazing how community can develop when you're vulnerable right when you're honest with people and you don't act like you've got it all wired together there's another problem with addicts is we 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 want isolate and believe that nobody will help us that that, that we're alone that we're uh, unlovable and unhelpable and unsavable and all that stuff and so then you find yourself out there isolated and you can't be helped if you're isolated so build some community build some prehab of good thoughts and good things and and words that you can call on when you need hope because hope turns out to be and there's all kinds of it's interesting to me that hope it, it sounds like just a something you wish for right so I, I hope for this but it turns out scientifically to be a process that's reliably producible social scientists that look at hope say that you, it requires agency and pathways so if you want to be a hopeful person or you want to take hope in a situation you have to have some sort of possibility that change is actually capable you're capable of it so agency and then pathways you got to have a path to the to, to the success at the end of the day so agency and pathways i also add in what i call memory and movement because you've been through something hard before and you're going to go through something hard again and the next time you go through something hard one of the key elements of finding hope is to say wait a minute this isn't the first time I've been through a hard thing and I didn't die. So I can remember some of the key successes of what happened to me before. And then I have to move. Now I've got to engage because hope is a verb. Hope is an action word. It's not a passive word. So now I remember it's not the first time. Here's some of the things I did the last time. And now I've got to move. I've got to take some kind of action, which is the pathway part of the science of hope. So Memory and movement working together are how we produce hope, no matter how dark it seems when we hit that massive thing. Wow, that's just that's just incredible. That's that's so cool. And that entire idea of well, hope being hope being an action word, yeah. and that it it can be predictable, and it's not just some airy fairy concept or idea. 
and the the concept of prehab, you know, really, really preparing yourself. Um, so I didn't know any of this. And I have a year-long program to help people stop drinking called The Path. And you can enroll. It, it kicks off on the first of every month. And you can enroll yeah. for the entire 30 days before. So like we cool. stop the moment and, and those entire 30 days are called hope versus doubt. And every day for the 30 days, there's a video dropped. That's five or six people who have told me their story on the podcast. And I ask every single time at the end of the podcast, I said, if you're going to go back in time and tell uh, your, your past self, what your life is like today, what would you say? And so it's just like four minute mile over and over and over. And so by the time the actual path program starts, the 12 months of curriculum, they've had between, you know, a few or 30 days, but they have access to all the videos. So they've had probably a hundred some just short two to three minute stories of, of someone just like them who's found freedom. And it's just wow. like repeating. And I'm, I'm never even, you know, it's just like a thought. I was just like, oh, that's just. That's just, I think, important. But I was like, I was doing prehab. <laughs> yep, you were. That's so That's cool. awesome. That's awesome. So you have prehab and then you have surgery, right? You have the the, the procedures that you can learn. And for me, it starts with this, the thought, what I call the thought biopsy, which is learning how to put a little space in between that thought that pops into your head and the way that you react to it. So Because normally you would have a thought, grab a beer, have a thought, yell at your spouse, have a thought, kick the dog, whatever you're response was and if and if the eastern meditators are good about this this learning how to kind of space out stimulus and response in our thoughts and so if you can grab that thought like i do when i take a piece of a biopsy of a brain tumor i look at it under the microscope and i decide what it is and i decide if it's a threat or not i decide if it needs to be removed or not i decide if it's normal and can be left alone and then i take action so you would think i was crazy if you came to see me in my office and he said, you know, I'm having these headaches. And and I said, it's a brain tumor. Let's go to the OR. I'm going to do surgery. You'd say, wait, time out. Like, shouldn't we do an MRI or something? Like, sh shouldn't we do some sort of testing, right? So the thought biopsy is that first step, like space that out between stimulus and response. And then a whole bunch of procedures. Sometimes it's a lousy attitude that you need to lobotomize and you need to cut that thing out. And sometimes it's just a six synapse that you formed and you can identify that as a bad automated response that you've made you need to make a new one so think about it differently find a better habit build a system around it put some protection around get some community to help call you out when you seem to be falling into that kind of line of thinking again there's usually a, a stream of bad thinking that precedes bad acting you know usually we've, we've been kind of in a grumpy mood for a few days or we've had a few losses and now we're kind of vulnerable and we're going to fall back into that whatever that we used to do so I put that stuff out there, the self-brain surgery stuff. And then after that, what do you do after you have a knee replacement? You go to physical therapy, you do rehab, right? So rehab is we've come through the, the acute phase of grief or massive pain or whatever the massive thing is. And we've done the surgery, we've come through it, we've survived it. What do we do next? And what we do next is we, we get stronger. We find things that help us to build those systems that are going to last, to increase resilience, to be prepared for the next time that comes along. Because the next thing will come along, right? I mean, no, no person who's been through something hard thinks that's the last hard thing they're ever going to go through. If we're smart, we, we recognize it happened this time, it can happen again. So we build that that muscle of resilience so that the next time it's easier to engage the treatment plan again. It's more automated. That's what you said earlier. Synapses are neurons that fire together, wire together. That's true in a neuroscience sense. It's true in life, too. We can build ourselves into people who instead of reflexively falling into habits or patterns that are harmful we can reflexively fall into things that help us instead we can speed dial that person we're going to talk to who's going to help us we can pray we can read we can you know do something to build ourselves back into that place where the, the next time the treatment plan fires more automatically Wow, it's so that's so powerful. Now I can't help thinking of of how the rest of that year plays out. But we do, we basically do sixty days where we say stop trying to stop drinking. Like don't no. even, you know. And it's it's just really an exploration of what you said the the biopsy of like all I want you to do is be curious and conscious of your thoughts that are preceding the drink, that are after the drink. You're drinking anyway, so like let's just be really curious for the next sixty days. 
and with radical self-compassion. And I'd be curious, I'll tell you the rest of it. And then I'll I'll be curious about uh, one of the ways I frame that just from your perspective and your point of view, because I feel like, I feel like it's probably something you recognized in, in my work, but there's so much synergies that I'm just unaware of because I'm just kind of going through my own, my own journey and then, and then articulating it for other people. But then after that 60 days, we do an experiment together, which is actually probably the surgery. That's like you put down the drink, you you actually stop drinking. And then there's nine months of, of learning to think better thoughts and, and finding peace inside your own brain and just like tools and tactics and strategies and principles around why you have built a mind and thought patterns that you want to self, you want to, you want to escape from that you need the self-medication for in the first place. And so, so much of it is that, that piece of like, okay, yeah. How are you going to navigate all the firsts that end up coming up? You know, cause your first vacation can be just as triggering if you haven't had a drink in two years yeah. as if you hadn't had a drink in two weeks or the first time you go to a wedding or something like that, because those triggers happen, they fire you're not. And so it's all that sort of preparation through the lens of, of really finding a more peaceful center and balance through these just proven, um, proven ways that have worked for, for lots of people. And so, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see how in your description, I can see that in the path um, year long program. I, I want to tell you how I frame this, this aspect of it, which is, I think the enemy to progress after just interviewing people, where do you get stuck? Where do you get stuck? Where do you get stuck? It's always shame. It's always the cycle. It's always beating myself up for, for doing the behavior again. It's always judging my own worthiness as a human being in line with what I am doing. So I've taken, I've taken worthiness as a human and my behavior, and I've married them together in such a way that I'm worthy if I'm not drinking and I'm not worthy if I am drinking. That's right. And it's, it's so societal, right? Like it, it comes from, if you're in recovery and you have a drink, like your, your, your value in life to humanity just like plummets. And we, ha- we all have thoughts, we all have judgments. Right. And so, um, so I actually say, okay, like, I want you to consider that actually your drinking so far in your life has been an act of self-love. It has been an act. And, and if you really dig deep for most of us, especially those of us who are self-medicating with alcohol, right? You think of that 13 year old who has been in a household with unimaginable instability and trauma. They have that first drink. And for the first time in their lives, they feel normal. They feel okay. They feel like everything's right in the world. Or you think of that woman who's going through a divorce and all of a sudden her drinking changes. And we, we just have this, this voice in our head that is just like, I can't believe you're doing this. What are you? What's wrong with you? How can you do this? Don't you care about anybody? Don't you care about anything? Like you are just the worst person. And that voice is, is we think that's the voice that's going to save us. We think if we scare ourselves bad enough, if we if we make ourselves wrong enough, we're going to pull ourselves out of the pit. That's right. But I actually say like that's totally the opposite because it it's it's recognizing and understanding that in my experience at least, I can look back at the times where I was like, oh, okay, I just I just need I just need a drink. It was it was self-care. You know, I just had the wrong tool for self-care. I had this liquid in this glass that was undermining my ability to even think straight. And and to further on to that, I describe it as if, you know, with, with the dopamine response and all the things that happen in your brain, your brain is literally getting confused to think that fermented liquid in a glass is akin to as important for your survival as something like, like oxygen or, or water. So, so you've, you've layered on this confusion, which is by the way, not your fault. Your brain is actually working how it should be. And then you've judged it as just like, you must be a horrible person, immoral, broken, when neither of those things are true, in my opinion. No, that's exactly right. You know, shame is, is an unhealthy response to anything that you might feel or anything that you might experience because shame, what it does is it puts you in a hole and punishes you and doesn't allow you to move forward and fix any of the things that you're feeling shame about, right? You're just stuck. And so I think a healthier way is to assess your behavior and try to find the places in it 
that that led you to the choices that you made and then just do an honest assessment you know biopsy why am i behaving the way that i am and your idea of of looking at the cognitive dissonance points is is a crucial and i think it's brilliant to say i am doing this because i haven't yet convinced myself that doing this is harmful to me i still believe in some way it's going to help me like i think i'm going to do it a hundred times and that hundredth time i'm going to wake up the next day i mean i'm sure glad i had two glasses of wine last night you know nobody ever does that i i said in my podcast the other day i was like nobody ever wakes up and wishes they had had one more glass of wine or one more day at work in their life or that they had gambled another hour you know, nobody ever wakes up and says i wish i had done more of that thing it's always why did i do that thing you know why did i why did i do that why did i go to that place why did i send that text why did i open that bottle it's always shame the next day so that i think your idea of it being self-care is a crucial idea because all of us are constantly trying to survive and we're constantly trying to find the way that will somehow make us feel a little bit better, a little happier, a little more peaceful than we felt before. And our brains are designed as a kind of an autopilot to navigate the dangerous things and try to get you to some place that where you survive and reproduce and and you know keep on living. And so if you if you look at how your brain is structured and you say what parts of my brain structure am I relying on at their baseline? And then what parts am I actually able to intervene in on a more executive level? You'll start seeing some opportunities to improve. And what I mean by executive level, as you know, is your frontal lobes are these giant opportunities to engage the world in a healthier way that allows you to make friends and, and not embarrass yourself and not make terrible decisions. Your frontal lobes are wonderful examples of creation where they say, wait a minute, that fight or flight response isn't helping me right now. That fight or flight response is going to hurt me. So I need to intervene in that and change it. But the problem with the frontal lobes is they get turned off by alcohol. They also get turned off by head injuries and they get turned off sometimes ignored because they take a little time to kick in. And we often just learn to run with that initial limbic response, that deeper, more, emotional fight or flight kind of thing. So we, we put ourselves in these positions. We do the things that have been hurting us for a long time. We feel shame that leads us to reproduce the behavior because we feel like there's nothing else I can do anyway. I'm just this hopeless X, Y, or Z. And so we stay stuck in that shame, that shame spot that so you're exactly right. Like teaching yourself, I'm not drinking or I'm not X, Y, Z because I'm a horrible person. I'm doing it because I've had a set of experiences that led me to that. And I was just trying to find a way to feel better. But now that I know that, right. now that I know it, I need to do something different to have a better outcome. Yeah. Now I need to do a different surgery. Don't treat a bad feeling with a bad operation. Yeah. I love that. Don't treat a bad feeling with a bad operation. That's, that's really, <laughs> well, this has been like mind blowingly. I mean, I, I've taken like pages of notes as we're talking I'm going to re-listen to this, but it's just been incredible. But um, let's finish up with, I invited you here because you told me a story that I was just like staggered by. <laughs> one story. One little story. And I'm so glad because this has just been such a valuable conversation, but That's do you like that story? Yeah. We were talking on your, on my podcast and I was telling you a story about when I was a resident, we, we have this, um, this day that I can remember crystal clear where we had a visiting professor in town and all the residents were supposed to go out to this fancy restaurant in in Pittsburgh and have dinner. And during the day of work, we were operating, doing brain surgery. And there's sometimes you need, um, some isopropyl alcohol to clean instruments or do something. And it's on the back table away from the, the field where the patient is. And the nurse, um, brought an instrument onto the field that was wet with alcohol and the attending surgeon just blew up on her, just screamed and cussed and said, don't you know, alcohol is a direct neurotoxin. It will kill the brain. If you get alcohol in the brain cell, it will kill those neurons. And it, you just can't do that. You moron, you know, don't get alcohol in the brain. And then two hours later, we're in this restaurant and all these neurosurgeons are getting hammered. They're drinking martinis and stuff. And I just, I was a young guy. I didn't drink it at all back then. And I, and I was looking around saying, this guy is putting alcohol directly into his bloodstream. That's going to end up in his brain. And two hours ago, he was cussing somebody out because alcohol is a direct neurotoxin. Like what, 
what's the breakdown here? So how can we know something? This is the cognitive dissonance piece, right? How can we know something is true and then engage in a behavior that's exactly the opposite of the true thing that we know? And that's the, that's the basic part of addiction right there, isn't it? Oh my gosh. That's just like, just even hearing it again, I'm like, wow, <laughs> how does this happen? How does this happen? I I saw this hilarious TikTok video somebody sent to me and it was like, a guy pretending to be an alien, you know, when they're, they're the person's both things, right? So he's pretending to yeah. be an alien, but he's also himself. And the alien comes down to earth and the alien's like, so what you drinking? And he's like, oh, it's like, you know, some booze. And he's like, well, what's booze? And he's like, well, you know, it's, it's like a drink. Well, does it taste good? He's like, oh, well, no, not really. Like we, we kind of have to mix a bunch of stuff in it. And he's like, oh, so it must, must make you feel pretty good. He's like, oh, for, for a bit, but then I generally end up you know, puking and, you know, I don't, I don't feel good after that, but for a while, yeah, it, it will, it must make you like funny or give you some special skills. Well, no, it, it makes me think I'm funny. And yeah. and it gives me, it makes me think I'm a good dancer, but, but I've seen the videos, like it, it really, it really, he's like, Oh, so are you forced to do this? And he's like, Oh no, no. It's like, well, <laughs> tell me it doesn't cost anything. And he's like, Oh yeah, no, it's expensive. <laughs> it's like such a wow. Commentary of like, Wait, what are we thinking? I don't understand. Oh. So good. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has just been such a pleasure. I, I really yeah. enjoyed our conversation. I have too, Annie. Thank you so much for the invite. I look, man, it's uh, always fun to talk to you. And um, get a copy of uh, Hope is the First Dose. That sounds just incredible. I, I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how this naked mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. 